If you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're in verse 33, and we'll read it here in just a moment. But first, this week I was hanging out on Twitter, which is something I I probably do more than I should have, and I came across a a tweet, a, a, a quote from someone's sermon. It was from a popular teacher. I'm not going to call him a preacher, and I'm not going to call him a pastor. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure he's a Christian. However, he does teach at a rather large church. And this quote was from his sermon last week, and it reads like this. Following Jesus does not change you into something else. It simply reveals who you are underneath it all. Wouldn't it be great for us to see ourselves as God sees us? That last part's almost there, but the rest of it is a on-fire dump, dumpster fire, really is what it is, let's be honest. This is a version of what's called the prosperity gospel, which is it's not about Jesus dying on the cross to make you something new. Instead, it's about who you are underneath it all. And you just need to self-actualize. This actually is more common on the Oprah Winfrey show than it is in most churches. Sadly for this man's church, it's very common for his church. This individual was listed as one of the top 100 soul influencers in America by Oprah Winfrey. Sadly, it got 18,000 likes and 3,000 retweets. Now let me translate that because I know everybody in here is not in Twitter. 18,000 likes are high fives, good word. And 3,000 retweets is writing it in a note and sending it to somebody and saying, isn't this great? See, this is what a lot of people think the Bible teaches. They think the Bible teaches it's not really about change. It's just about cleaning up the outside and a little tweak here and there. Just a little, you know, a little oil change. That's what we do here on Sundays. Quick little lube job, oil change, and you're out the door. That's actually exactly opposite. It flies in the face of what Jesus has been teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So here's our point for today. Kingdom citizens are known for their radical denial of self. Kingdom citizens are known for their radical denial of self. Remembering that we are in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. This is Him saying, this is my kingdom. This is what it's like. But more importantly, this is what people look like who inhabit my kingdom. And remember, this is not a checklist of, I'm going to do these things and I'm in the kingdom. Instead, it's I'm in the kingdom, so these are the things that I'm doing. And if I'm not doing them, I should wonder which kingdom I'm in. See, kingdom citizens, we're cross-bearing citizens. We deny ourselves for the betterment of others. Today's passage is all about self, and specifically the denial of it. So let's read it, starting in verse 33. Again, you've heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one 
who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to those who beg from you, and do not refuse the one whom, who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Now the thing about this, this passage, we need to make sure we understand what's going on here. We talked about this a little bit last week. Jesus is referencing teaching, and, and he's referencing and he's saying, this is what you've heard, but I say. And a lot of people think this is Jesus saying, well, the Old Testament doesn't apply, and here's my new law. This is the, this is the New Testament new law. Let's ignore the Old Testament. And I, I went to, uh, to, uh, to some links last week to talk about how that's not the case. But as with God's Word, sometimes the answer, the, the, the explanation is staring you right in the face. And this week, as I was looking at this passage, and I listened to a preacher preach on this, he, he said, well, you, you don't have to defend the Old Testament here. And I'm like, come on, we got to defend the Old Testament. It's important. He says, you don't have to defend it. Jesus isn't talking about the Old Testament. Because look what it says. It says, you have heard it said. Not, it is written. See, anytime Jesus is referencing the Old Testament, and usually he's quoting it about himself, he says, you know it's written. So what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the way that the scribes and Pharisees and the teachers of the law are misinterpreting these passages. He's not talking about what the Word said. He's not like he's going, okay, let's take our white out and let's get rid of these sections of the Old Testament. No, instead, he's saying, let's get back to what it really says. What it really reads as. And that's what we're doing here today. So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at oaths. And this starts in verse 33. This is the original commandment. Again, you have heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, this is a quote from the Old Testament, but it's kind of also summarizing a bunch of quotes. So I want to read to you guys kind of rapid fire some Old Testament quotes so you get what the point was. Uh, you know, the, the Lord is, is, understands the way we work and we need to have things repeated over and over again. So here's some verses that go right with this from the Old Testament. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the Lord, name of your Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your Lord. I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So that informs verse 33, which says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. See, all four of these commandments, these ones that I read to you before verse 33, the point of all these is not how you swear. It's that if you swear, you keep it. It's the truth. It's not perjury. It's not lying. It's not exaggerating. See, the Pharisees had shifted this. I mean, the Pharisees, I mean, they, they, have, they have this down, how to, how to find wiggle room out of stuff. You know, and, and, and I think... If you've ever been around children for any amount of time, 
As they get older, they get really good at, well, you didn't say to do it that way, right? So this is what the Pharisees did. They said, this isn't talking about taking the Lord's name in vain. It's about taking the name of the Lord in vain. The focus is on the name. So as long as you don't say the name, you're fine. As long as you don't actually say God's name, it's fine. So if you said Lord instead of God, oh, there's a way out, right? You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's crazy to see how, how many ways they worked around this. This elaborate system made it, the, so you, it's the exact opposite of the reason why oaths existed. These oaths were abused. In Jesus' day, you could make an oath in the name of Jerusalem. As long as you're not accidentally facing Jerusalem, then it's, you have to keep it. You could make an oath towards the temple, but as long as you don't make an oath about the temple's gold, you're okay. You could make an oath by the altar of God, but not the sacrifice on the altar. You see how this is like parsing it out? I mean, this is like junior high varsity level, right? Like a junior higher who just goes, ooh, well, you didn't say this, but you said that. You know, this is, this is some pretty expert level stuff. And the thing about it is, this is what the, the Jews at this time, all of the disciples, everybody who's listening to Jesus is steeped in. This idea of there's certain ways to get away with lying, but other ways that are not, because God will get you. See, there's two kinds of swearing or, or, or taking oaths that are bad, that are sinful. The first one is a frivolous one. This is the one we're probably most used to. And this is the one where you just go, I swear to God, I didn't do it. Right? Something like that. It's not meant to actually invoke God. It's just meant for emphasis. It's saying, I really mean this. Then there's the evasive kind, and this is the one Jesus is speaking about. By the way, that first one is taking the Lord's name in vain too. But the evasive one is not swearing by God, but swearing by something else so that there's wiggle room so I can actually lie. This is the model that we see here. So let's look at what Jesus says. Here's how the Pharisees did it. They, uh, thir- verse 34, they're going to lay out four things that they swear by. But Jesus starts right off. He says in verse 34, but I say to you. So this is Jesus. Now get this. He said, the, the teachers have said, and then he, the one who gave us the law, is now saying, no, this is what the law actually says. The word is giving us a word about the word. I love it. I mean, that's the way God's brain works. I love that Jesus, the lawgiver, is pointing us back to the law that he already gave us. He says, do not take an oath at all. We're going to have to come back to that because that doesn't mean we don't do oaths ever, but we're going to have to come back to that. But look at what he says next. He says, by either heaven, for it's the throne of God, by earth, for it's his footstool, by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You know, I turned 45 like a week and a half ago, and I swear I got like five more white hairs in my head. So if you guys don't want to say an amen to verse 36, I will say it. Amen. You can't change the hair. Martin Luther, well, I had to quote him because Luke's here today. And uh, Martin Luther once said, high oaths advertise profound lies. This idea of the, the more you say, no, 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 really, I mean it. Have you ever had that where somebody goes, okay, truthfully, truthfully, I, I, I'm going to say this. And you kind of go, what has our relationship been up to this point? What has this conversation been? Has it all been lies? Because now you're telling the truth, right? So these, this, this push to say, these are the oaths that really matter. This is when it really matters was a way for the people to swear without it actually counting. 
See, they thought they were getting around it, right? They thought, hey, I'm not swearing by God so I can get around it. But what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, it all belongs to God. So if I swear by a dung beetle, or if I swear by the most amazing mountain range, or the entire universe, or the name of God, it's all God's, and I'm swearing by him no matter what. See, the point of swearing in this time, and the point of when we swear, when we put oaths, is many times to get people to believe us. All the while, not getting into trouble with God. See, it's a way to manipulate people. It's a way to say, I want you to do what I want you to do, and I can't really tell you the truth, because if I did, you wouldn't want to do what I want you to do, so therefore I'm going to sugarcoat it. I'm going to work my way in. It's a way to try to bypass the thinking, the understanding, the feeling of another individual. It's ultimately a form of selfishness. I don't value you. I want my way, so I'm going to manipulate you to do what I want you to do. Dallas Willard writes, whatever consent they give to us will be uninformed because we have short-circuited their understanding of what's going on. By saying, I swear to God. No, no, really, I swear on my mother's grave, which is awkward because she's sitting right there. Right? So you can't, you can't do that. There's, 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 a, there's a way to do it that they're trying to get around. This idea of um, walling off the muddy lies that I have in this now pristine place of I'm telling the truth now. Unfortunately, this is what Jesus is staring at. He's saying even more than this. He's saying we lie continuously. We have all these ways to work ourselves around lying. Now, I know that we don't have recess time and we don't have the, I, I, you know, I swear and I do this, I you know, double stamp, whatever, whatever method you have to, to get it. No take backsies, right? We don't have recess where we're trying to get people to agree with us. So how does this oath thing apply to us? Well, I think the number one way is with contracts. There are many of us who enter into contracts of some form or some shape, and there's people whose livelihood is made by getting people out of contracts. And that's the thing, is that's where we're at with oaths, is to make our yes, yes, and our no, no. Because that's what Jesus demands of us as believers. Look at this radical denial of self. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, what this does not say, so going back to the very beginning when it says, do not take oaths at all, and then let your yes be yes and your no be no, what this is not saying is you cannot take oaths ever. What it's saying is you shouldn't have to take oaths to get people to believe you. Because when an authority steps in and says, you must take this oath, such as a, in a courtroom, you raise your hand and you swear to tell the whole truth. You can't go, no, I don't take oaths, because you're not submitting to the authority in that room, which says you must take the oath. When you sign up for the military, and if you've done that in here, thank you so much for your service. But when you sign up for the military, you are signing up and you are swearing allegiance, and that is required of you to be in the military. That's not what's in, in view here. The same thing goes for marriages. When you swear to devote your life to that other person. That's not what we see here. Those are all legal, and that's out here. This is the personal. This is saying, I don't need to swear by anything to prove my point. And if I do, it's, it's superfluous because I'm going to keep it anyways. 
We see the Apostle Paul swears. He says, I swear before God. And all he's doing is he's saying, I am from God and God is showing you trust in God because of this. We see that God himself takes oaths. Now this is not because God's trying to convince us that he's going to tell the truth. Instead, what he's doing is he's saying, I am so truthful that I can swear by myself and it's just to encourage you that I'm speaking the truth. Why? Because you all lie and you all don't keep your word. So it's God's way of condescending to us to say, you can trust me. I'm taking an oath so that you know this is the way it is. It is not necessary, nor is it needed, but it's what God does because of our sin. George MacDonald, who was influential in leading C.S. Lewis to the Lord through his writings, he writes, I always try, most of the time, to be truthful. All the same, I am really good at telling petty lies. Things that mean one thing to one person and something else to someone else. But I do not think lightly of it. When I'm more often wrong is when I pretend to get other people's jokes. The point is, I missed the punchline. But I laughed anyways because I didn't want to look like a fool. And I realized the number one reason why I lie is because I'm worried about what others think of me. I worry about what others think of me. Think about it. If, if, if we are able to avoid even the fibs and the little white lies in our lives, or when we do a white lie or a fib, if we repent immediately and just go, you know what, I, I don't know why I just said that. That was a lie. Would you forgive me? That right there may be the strongest proof that there's a God who's working in your life stronger than any apologetic or theological dissertation that you could put on to that person is the fact that you said, you know what? I just did a white lie and I got to repent. Can you forgive me for that? That was stupid. And I'm, I, I shouldn't have done that. When people know that a lie is a, as horrent to you as murder and adultery and all the other sins that are listed all of a sudden, you look a lot like a city on a hill. You look like the salt that we are called to be earlier in this same passage. Because ultimately, a Christian simple yes is going to be greater than the equivalent of a whole long string of pagan oaths. That's the way it should be. And that's the way it must be if we are a citizen of the kingdom. The law wrestles with the sinfulness of man and erects an oath to be a dam against lying. But praise be to God that, that that dam doesn't need to be there if we're in Christ because He comes along and He gives us a new heart. And that new heart, that, that heart that no longer bends towards self is now bent towards others and Christ. This new heart changes us. So instead of following Jesus does not change you into something else, Praise be to God that following Jesus changes you into something new. And that something new looks like the Savior, our King. So that's our first bit. We're talking about oaths and how they're, they're, they're selfishly bent towards me wanting my own way. Now let's look at revenge. Now being a student of history and loving history, I, I couldn't talk about revenge without talking about the Hatfields and McCoys. If you aren't familiar with the Hatfields and McCoys, they were a, um, two families that actually probably were distantly related. 
um, that lived in West Virginia, the place that would be West Virginia. And they have a very famous feud to the point where if you say someone's fighting like Hatfields and McCoys, you're saying they're fighting bad. They're fighting a lot. There's been a lot of history done on these two families. Uh, There's all sorts of little quirky things about them. But the one thing they can't figure out is where the fight started. Could be that the McCoys were Unionists and the Hatfields were Confederates, but it seems like that kind of blew over. It could be that one of the Hatfields stole one of the McCoys' pigs, his favorite pig, I hear, which my favorite pig is grilled in, in a hamburger. But apparently he was really tight with that pig. But what happened was, in 1882, a Hatfield and a McCoy happened to be in a bar together. And during this interchange, they started discussing something, and it came to blows. And the, 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 one of them pulled a knife, the Hatfield pulled a knife, and went to stab the McCoy, and the McCoy pulled a gun and shot him dead. Well, that seems pretty clear-cut, defending yourself. However, they did not see it that way. The Hatfields kidnapped three McCoys and then killed them, and then it was on. And from that point, it kept escalating over and over again to the point where federal marshals had to come in and there were all sorts of court proceedings and so on. And I share this because this is the world's way of responding. You take my eye, I take two of your eyes. Well, you take my two eyes, I take your head. Well, you take my head, well, fine, I'm going to have my people take three of your heads. And it just keeps going back and forth. And so we get to this revenge teaching as Christ puts it. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is called lex talionis, which simply means the law of retaliation. This is found in Exodus 21, verse 24, and Leviticus 24, verse 20. This is a very popular, very well-discussed Old Testament verse. As a matter of fact, Gandhi himself said, an eye for an eye will leave the world blind. He thought that this was a ridiculous statement. But I'm sorry, Gandhi got it wrong. This is actually a very reasonable way to respond to somebody who's wronged you. It is a legal response. It's a lack of escalation. It's saying if something bad is done by one person, the law needs to step in and do the same exact proportionally to that and no more. So it's not you took someone's whatever and you die for it took someone's horse so we put you to death however throughout history things have gotten this wrong this is a a look at that law which is meant to curb men's evil see this law was a law in israel as a matter of fact this is a law that our law has been borrowed from this idea that if, if you wrong somebody and there is a certain monetary value or a, a, a life value, that would be then what you pay, you pay in response. And aren't we upset when that doesn't happen? Somebody murders somebody and they get out on parole in a few years? We, we hate that because that's not the way it's supposed to be. See, the Pharisees had taken this out of the legal system, where it still was, and had brought it to the individual, to the personal, where it doesn't belong. And they said, yeah, yeah, okay, the law will punish the murderer for what he's done, but you are allowed to go all the way up to murder on him personally if you so choose. 
See, what, the, what they had done was they had taken it out of its correct realm, the legal realm, and had said, no, you have the right to do it yourself. Which is ironic because in Leviticus 19.18, it says, you shall not take revenge, take vengeance, or bear a grudge against one of your own people. And see, the, the, the Pharisees had got it directly opposite. They had got it, well, you can take revenge, but only up to this point. Not, you can't take revenge. One of the Bible scholars I read a lot of, he says, no matter how much we wish to follow Jesus seriously, we discover sooner or later that seriously following Jesus entails hard thinking about what he said and did not say. And this is one of those passages. We have to think hard about this. We have to compare other passages and bring it all together because if we take a text right out of the Bible and not reading it in its context, we absolutize it and we make it say what it doesn't mean to say, which was what happened here. They pulled this out and they said, see, this means you can go over and you can do all sorts of stuff, just don't kill them, right? You can, you can take that eye, go over and get it. You can take that tooth. And Jesus is saying, no, you're missing the entire point. So Jesus returns us to the main meaning of this command. Verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The word resist means to oppose, and the one who is evil means an evildoer. What this is saying here, and again, we pull this verse out of context, we throw it up, it's like, hey, you can't resist Hitler. Sorry. Right? You can't resist bad people. Bummer. They're going to win. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In this context, and what we've already seen and what we will see in a second, he is saying it's not about personal retaliation. It's not my job to go and fix the wrongs. It's to let the, let the legal system do its job, and I have to forgive. I have to get to where that's my heart response. This is not prohibiting force used by governments or police or soldiers in combating evil. Instead, it's our own heart. That's the problem. See, we can't divorce this from all the other things that have come through this entire time. Jesus is saying, our heart's the problem, our heart's the problem, our heart's the problem. And then all of a sudden, now it's the system, and we got to get rid of all rules. That's not the point. It's our heart that's the problem. James 4, 7 and 1 Peter 5, 9 say we are to resist the devil. Same word. So we are to oppose the devil. We are not to oppose and take retaliation on those who hurt us. 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Spurgeon says, We are to be the anvil when bad men are the hammers. Being an anvil is one thing, but I I don't know that I want to be a doormat. But Jesus' illustration is not of a weakling saying, oh, I'm I'm just going to have you beat on me. He's saying, no, I am offering no resistance. I am offering no revenge because I know the one who is in control will avenge. I know the one who's in control will right the wrongs. This is a strong man in Christ who has control of himself and has love for others so powerfully that he rejects all retaliation. So now we have to look at these illustrations. There are four illustrations that that Jesus gives us. 
We need to first note, these are not commands, but they are illustrations. We need to not approach them like the Pharisees and be like, oh, he hit me on this shoulder. That's not a cheek, so you can't hit me over here. Well, I don't own a tunic, so guess what? You can't take my stuff. Um, they can't make me go anywhere. That's not the rules anymore, so I'm going to work. This isn't about workarounds. And it's interesting because even as the pastors, we sat down and we were talking through this, we were like, well, does this mean they can go this far? Does this mean we can do this? That's wrong. That's not the point here. Instead, this is an illustration. It's to say, here's an example. This is not a law. This is not saying you do this. So we all got to go buy tunics. We all got to buy cloaks because when our tunics get taken, we have to give the cloaks. No, that's not the point. The point is hold on to the things loosely because ultimately they're not yours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived this out, said, the followers of Jesus for his sake renounce every personal right. He calls them blessed that they are me- when they are meek. If after giving everything up for Christ's sake, we still hold on to our rights, we have ceased to follow Christ. What a powerful picture there. I'm going to give everything up in my life for Christ, but I'm not going to give up my rights. My rights are mine. I must hold on to them. They are there. This is all about self and our attitude. A truly Christian individual is dead to self and their own rights. One of the commentaries I read, the chapter title for this section was, Have We No Rights? Do we have these rights? These verses teach us that the followers of Jesus Christ have no rights to retaliation, no rights to their stuff, no rights to their time, no rights to their money. In other words, everything we have is on loan from God. Everything we have is entrusted to us by God, and we are obligated to use them as he sees fit, and that is to help others. Do we get that? Do we, we, we get that the American mindset of whoever has the most stuff wins? Jesus' mindset is whoever gives away the most stuff is the one who's winning because you're a part of the kingdom. And that includes our time, our possessions, our money, our desire to get revenge, our desire to be well thought of. All of that needs to be laid on the altar. See, just like when, when they tried to get around this by swearing on these things that God made, Jesus is continuing saying, yeah, and all this stuff that I've given you, it's not yours either. It's God's. So what are you doing with it? So here's the first illustration, verse 39. Slapping on the cheek. Now this is an injury to honor. This is, a, this is not a slap like you would see in a movie or something like that. This is a, I am defacing you. A, a, a good parallel today would be, this is me spitting on you. This is me spitting in your face. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. This is not saying, well, if they hit your left, you don't have to. This is a honor situation. This is not um, this this not returning an insulting slap is a not willing to escalate violence. So someone dishonors you and slaps you, so you slap them back, and then they slap you twice, and we are all of a sudden the Hatfields and McCoys. However, this does not mean that we are not to defend ourselves if someone's trying to kill you. This does not mean that if someone is abusing you or hurting you, that you do not get out. 
There's countless Bible verses that defend that. And if you want to know, come see me afterwards. This is not stay and take it in a situation with abuse. Instead, it is get out of the situation, but understand Jesus wants us to arc towards loving the attacker, which means sometimes we have to eliminate the thing that that attacker wants to attack. We have to eliminate the opportunity that that person has for violence and then let the people who are in charge of enforcing the law do that. So this is not a just take it. Instead, it is a honor. It's a retaliation thing. It's not my job to fix the situation. Instead, it's the job of the righteous judge through his lawgivers. Romans 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This idea of killing or taking life, all of this is not what is in view here. Jesus will deal with this later in the sermon. Instead, this is all about our heart and our reaction to what people have done to us. Is it, I'm going to go after them and get my pound of flesh? Or is it, I'm going to leave it in the hands of the Lord? This would have been offensive to the Jews at this time. Because in their time, there were laws, and the Romans, all the laws benefited the Romans and not the Jews. And so it looked like, in many situations, that the Romans were getting away with stuff. And this would have been hard for them to hear. This is why the Jews were hoping for a conquering Messiah. They were hoping that the Messiah would come in and kill all the Romans, and then the Jews would be in charge of messing things up instead of the Romans. But that's not who Jesus is. According to Jesus, it's more important to give justice and mercy than it is to receive it. Now, Some of you, I know many of you are Bible scholars, and you might be in your mind thinking, wait a second, I seem to remember a time that Jesus was struck on the cheek. This was when Jesus was visiting the high priest in chains. He went before the high priest, and the high priest ordered Jesus to be struck, and he was struck on the right cheek in his face. And did Jesus turn the other cheek? He didn't. So what do we do with this? What do we do with something like this when we encounter it in the Bible? He calls out his striker and he says, why did you strike me? What did you do that for? Paul did the same thing as well. He's thrown in prison. He'd been struck. He goes, hey, is it lawful for you to you know, hurt a Roman citizen? Pretty sure it's not. When, when Paul did that, was he going against what Jesus taught? Because he knew this. And the answer is, this is not a contradiction. Because they're not exerting their personal rights. Instead, they're rebuking the law for not following the law. They're rebuking those who are in legal authority for not following legal authority. If they would have struck Jesus again, they were breaking the rules. The rules were, if you have a chained individual, you're not allowed to strike them. So see, Jesus is not going, why are you insulting me? That hurt. He's going, why are you breaking God's law? Why are you breaking my law? Why are you breaking the Roman law in Paul's case? 
See, we are not to be concerned with insults and defending ourselves. Instead, when they break the law, when someone breaks the law, it's our job to point out that they are violating what they are doing. Because just as we are supposed to have love for our neighbor, we also have to have love for our neighbor of the people that are in charge of us, in the government, in the police force, in the military. If they are not following their rules, whoa, watch out. They are in trouble, not with us, not with the Supreme Court, not with the military court of justice. They're in trouble with the God of the universe because it says their sole job is to enforce what is good and punish what is evil. So it is loving to call out someone when they are not doing what God has called them to do. Flagrantly breaking God's law. Remember, Romans 13 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will be, see, receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. See, every single person in authority in a nation, in a government, in a military, in a police force, all of those groups that are meant to enforce law and order, their job is delineated, is laid out by God. It is their job to do it. And when they are doing it the way they're supposed to, justice is done. When they're not, we are to call them out. We are to say, here's where we're at. But honestly, we look at this and we go, come on, Jesus, couldn't you, you know... We, what would we have done in that situation? We would have hit back. We would have struck back. We would have, you know, if we were chained, we would have spit and we'd be telling them how bad they are and cursing their mothers. See, there's a wide gulf between us and Christ. And what Christ is trying to do here is he's trying to make that gulf smaller and smaller before we get to heaven. See, the New Testament values laws. The Old Testament values laws. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, we should be grateful for the laws that are over us because they are instituted not by the government, not by Salem, not by D.C., but by the God of the universe. And we should always recognize that that's the way it's supposed to be. So that's the first one. The next three are all about things. The second illustration, taking of the tunic. This is where someone takes your stuff unfairly. Litigious treatment, one person called it. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This sue you is, again, it's a frivolous lawsuit. It's going, I want your stuff, so I'm going to make up some reason to take it. Jesus is commanding his disciples to go above and beyond to make amends. And why? Because it's not their stuff they're giving away. They're giving away the stuff that God has loaned to them to others and saying, here you go. It's not mine to guard jealously. Instead, recognizing everything we have is a gift from the Lord and it's on loan. Don't live for the stuff. We're entering into a season of our, of our calendar where stuff becomes a huge focus around Christmas. Don't let the stuff that you have or don't have decide who you are. Instead, be willing to give it away. Third illustration, going the other mile. This is an exploitation. When someone exploits you, when someone takes your good works and uses them to exploit you. This is a right to time. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go to mile, go with them too. This is a practice the Roman centurions could do. They could force a Jewish man to carry their bags for one mile. 
and it was pretty common the Jewish individual would not go a single step past one mile. Again, Jesus is not giving this to us to say, okay, two miles, not 2.1. I'm not running a 5K with these guys. I'm just stopping and dropping. No, that's not the point. The point instead is I am going to view my time as a gift from the Lord. Don't we do that anyways? Don't we get to when we're at the end of our lives, we view how little time we have left, how much we have as a gift from the Lord? If you are 12 or if you're 82, all of the time we have is a gift from the Lord. And so we can take that gift and we can offer it back to the Lord by giving it up for others. What this looks like is don't be stuck on your schedule. Don't be stuck. Don't have it be that someone calls and you go, oh, I was right in the middle of that show on Netflix. Oh, man, I was going to run an errand, but someone wanted to talk to me. Oh, man, I got stuck in traffic right here, and I was so... You fill in the blank. Take our time and give it up to the Lord. If we started... I mean, think about how this is going to stick out. How is this going to stick out in our world right now? I mean, how many of you have been cut off in traffic this week? Right? How many of you have seen people, I mean, I, the other day, Katie and I, I forget where we were, but um, we were, oh, it was at Costco. And we were at Costco, and Katie was sitting there waiting for a parking spot. And if it's one of you, don't worry, you don't have to confess, we've already forgiven you. But we're, we're at Costco, and Katie is in the van getting ready to turn in, and a person literally goes around her and cuts her off to turn into it. It's like, what? In what world is that okay? Right? And so she had to drive around for an extra few minutes. And grace, she's gracious and she was fine and she didn't do anything to that person. But that, that's, she's better than me. Um, that's, <laughs> that's the thing with time, right? If we all of a sudden viewed it as, hey, you know what? You have the closer parking spot. I'm gonna take the farther away one. Is that gonna stick out in our world? Yeah. And this is what Jesus is asking us. Fourth illustration, a generous spirit. This is the right to our money. Give to one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We are to help those who are needy. We are to help those who are forced to beg. We're not to give foolishly. We're not to give to those who are lazy. We're not to give to those that would harm them. But we are to have a generous spirit. Now I know if you've been anywhere in Portland, you've seen quite a few people begging and asking for money. And many of us are confused pretty sure that that's not going to go for the food that their sign says they're going to spend it on. That doesn't get us out of giving. We just have to be more creative. We just have to find ways to do it. Because the Bible says, 2 Corinthians, each of you has decided in his heart not reluctantly to give or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. 1 John 3.17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need... Not sees the brother is going to use it the right way, but sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. One commentator says, nothing reveals our true depth of our Christianity or lack thereof as our attitude towards our money. So how can you use your money to bless those who are in need? There's lots of things going to spring up in the next two months as we get closer to Christmas. But it should be something that we are known for as Christians throughout. And this is what Christians have been known through throughout the history of Christianity, is their charity. We give a whole lot more, but there's a lot more to be done. And so give to those who are in need. Now see, these four illustrations, 
I wanted to call them the four confrontations at the beginning, but I didn't want to play my hand. I wanted you to see them as illustrations because these are confrontations with people that want to wrong you. Jesus doesn't say, when they slap you on the, other, slap you on the cheek, run away. He doesn't say, they slap you on the cheek, curl up into the fetal position. Instead, it says, confront it with good. Confront it with love. The nonviolent response. They hit you on the cheek. They insult your honor. Say, hey, there's more that you can insult. Give me more. They take your stuff. What else can I give you? They want your time. Hey, can I give you more time? Is there anything else you need? They, they, they want your money. Give it to them. Protecting them from themselves. Yeah, but give it to them. And think about what this will accomplish. But see, don't get hung up there and think that, well, this is going to accomplish something great. We're going to have so many more people in our church. We're going to have so many more people come to the Lord. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, you do this because you belong to me, not because it's going to lead to more conversions, not because it's going to lead to a bigger new life church, not because you're going to get a pat on the back that says, oh, I'm pretty amazing, but because you belong to me. These are what my citizens look like. So, Honesty time. We can't do this. These four illustrations, we're going to stink it up. We're going to mess it up more than we're going to actually do it right. We need Christ. This is not a, here's how you should live, so go do it. It's, if you're in Christ, this is the way you're going to begin living. This is the way you're going to do it. See, we need to realize most of the miseries in our lives come from self and putting myself over you and myself over others. Think about this last week. Think about the times you were unhappy, strained, irritated, had a bad temper, said things you didn't mean, had to go apologize for. What disturbed you? What knocked you off of the balance that you had for that day? What do these all have in common? Every single one, self. And you go, whoa, wait, whoa, wait a second. No, no, no. You know, you know that, that person cut me off. That was not me. I, 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 that was them. Well, think about that person. Why was that person cutting you off? Why was that person taking Katie's spot? Because they put self above themselves. And think about it. If you're there and they cut you off and you get offended by it, it's because self was just, yourself was just put in second place to that person's self. It's all about self. See, if we actually saw this rightly, when someone's self encroaches on us, the right response is to pray for that person because they are in bondage. They're in bondage to an idol that takes and takes and takes and it will eventually take their life and they will be in hell for eternity because self does not save. We are terrible saviors. There's one good savior. So the person who cuts you off, the prayer should not be, Lord, Heap lots of burning coals on them. Instead, it's, Lord, man, he thinks self is going to save him. She thinks self is what's really important. But they are so wrong. And Lord, I've been wrong. I pray that that person would see that self is a terrible Savior. And help me where I put self ahead of you. 
That should be our response. That's a kingdom response. A kingdom response is not get up close to the person and glare at them and honk your horn. Kingdom response is, oh my gosh, that person is stuck in sin. That person is worshiping the idol of self. They're on the highway to hell. Lord, get them. Whatever you need to do. See, Christ put aside self for us. Is there any better picture of that? The God of the universe became flesh. He experienced cold, hot, hungry. He's experienced pain he put aside self for us isn't that amazing that's the way we are to be see jesus's final purpose in dying was not merely for us to be forgiven not merely to save us for hell from hell but that we might be new people that we might be reformed a new humanity created to look like him and to become more and more like him See, the new covenant says, I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's the person that's going to live like Christ. Now, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you're going, man, I need to get more Christian friends. They're trustworthy. They're going to give me their stuff. This is a great idea. But I don't really want to do that. I don't want, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't want to give up self I still like myself, but I would sure like more Christians to take care of self. You need to understand that this radical call on your life is because our world is so radically broken. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were wandering around naked, not realizing they were naked, not realizing there was bad things that could happen to them, not realizing that there was anything that they lacked until sin entered in and all of a sudden everything got harder everything got worse and jesus is saying my kingdom is going back to the garden look at the book of revelation look what tree is right there in the middle of that city that comes down it's a return to the garden jesus is saying i'm breaking into this world to put it back together the way it was meant to be before adam and eve sinned and praise be to god that world is coming it's a beautiful world So this isn't just, oh, I've got to kill self. It's you get to be a part of the way the world was supposed to be. Following Jesus does change you into something else. It returns you to the way Jesus created all of us to be originally. And it helps us see what's coming next. See, all four of these portraits that we've seen is about degradation. It's usually impossible for us to be degraded unless we've been upgraded. As believers, we are to be upgraded. We are being brought into a relationship with the Lord. A a theological way to put this would be when a person knows they are justified before God, they can be treated unjustifiably before man. That's the place that we need to be. So I want to leave you with a quote. I added a little bit to the end because he didn't, didn't round it out. But George Mueller says, There was a day when I died. I utterly died. I died to George Mueller and his opinions and his preferences and tastes and will. I died to the world. I died to its approval. I died to its censor. I died to the approval and blame of my brethren and my friends. This was the day that I was reborn. This was the day that I became a citizen of the king. This was the day that I entered into the kingdom of heaven. If you're a member of the kingdom of heaven, lean into that. Let the Lord work on you. 
and become the person that God wants you to be because following Jesus does change who you are. Praise be to God that it does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage, Lord. Thank you for the hard truths, the hard words that are in here. But more, more importantly, Lord, thank you for the love that you've given us, that we don't have to figure this out on our own, that you do it through us and in us. Lord, I pray that we would rely on you, that we would trust in you more, and that we would become kingdom citizens who are known for denying ourselves because we are so in love with you. Grow that in us now, Lord, in your name. Amen.